the God who carried you safely through another year, preserving you in the Christian faith, may that same God in the year to come continue to preserve, protect, bless you, sustaining you in that one true faith until he calls you home. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, clever sayings, well, interesting, amusing, eye-catching, can actually serve to belie or mask the seriousness of the situation. I'm thinking here in particular of a saying attributed to Benjamin Franklin during the Revolutionary War, we must all hang together or assuredly we will all hang separately. Franklin obviously had a wit that enabled him to come up with this sort of a saying, but do you see how it has a tendency or the capability of trivializing to a certain extent the seriousness? What he's saying is, if we fail in this, if we don't stick together and succeed in this, the British are going to hang every single one of us, literally. So if we don't hang together, we will hang separately. That's another you probably heard. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Again, clever. And that cleverness tends to obscure the truth, the seriousness of the truth it conveys. This, by the way, is attributed, as far as we know, to a chaplain named Peter Marshall who is addressing the United States Senate on the need for morality. Obviously, something that should be repeated almost daily. So this morning we combine these two. And we do so in an effort to avoid being seduced into believing that this is really trivial or unimportant. So we combine the two into the title that you see of the sermon for this morning, Stand Together or Fall Apart. And this is anything but trivial. We're talking, as we begin another church year, about Christian unity. And the problem is, is that we tend to underestimate both the upside and the downside. The downside is when Christian unity is fractured, not only is there tremendous heartache, angst, turmoil, uncertainty, but we also rob each other of the gifts that we're supposed to share as a unified Christian congregation. And that also teaches us what the upside is. God longs to have those gifts that he has placed in every individual member of a congregation. He longs to have those used to the benefit of all. And that simply can't happen in a fractured congregation. Every animal in the wild knows that they're more susceptible by themselves. That's why there's herds and flocks and schools and coveys. So it is that this morning we pause at the beginning of another church year to take stock of what's important. And we remind ourselves and each other of how important this seemingly innocent topic can be. The text that will guide us in our study is found in Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, or first letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter, so the very beginning of the letter, beginning with the third verse. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is God's word. This is our only infallible guide. This alone is truth, pure, holy, confident of this, using this as the basis for everything that we teach and believe. So also this morning we begin with this prayer. Sanctify us, that is, set us apart for holy purposes only. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. So when you hear the opening verses of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, what impression do you get if this is all you knew, what impression do you get of the state of that congregation? Now, those who have been able to attend our study, our ongoing midweek study of 1 Corinthians, should be going, ooh, 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 I know, I know, I know. They were a mess. But that's not what you'd get from this, is it? Because Paul talks glowingly, enriched by God in all speech and in all knowledge, not lacking in any spiritual gift waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is all you knew, if this is all you knew and didn't read the rest of the letter that was to come, you'd think, man, those guys got it going on. That's a congregation that we want to emulate. Well, what does the rest of the letter tell us? This congregation was a mess in almost every conceivable way. It's startling because you read the beginning and you think, okay, I want to find out how a well-functioning congregation operates. And then it's Paul addressing one major problem after another. I, I can't even communicate all of them. Just go through, if your Bible has headings, go through 1 Corinthians and look at the headings. They, their celebration of Holy Communion was a train wreck. I, I don't know what they thought they were doing, but what they did is they came and they had some kind of feast and called it Holy Communion. And Paul said, some of you are drunk. Some of you are stuffing yourselves because you got money. And then there's these poor families over here who got nothing. And you're calling that Holy Communion. They didn't know about whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. They didn't know about head coverings. Like, should women wear head coverings or shouldn't they? There were lawsuits among believers in Corinth. Think of that. Members of the same congregation suing each other. 
one man who was doing something that even shocked the godless, the pagans. He had moved in with his stepmother and was living with her in sin. On and on the list goes, but boy, that's not what you'd get from this. You would expect, I would guess, because we extrapolate our own sense of propriety onto them, but you would walk into their service and you would expect to hear an orderly liturgical service. It was wild monkeys jumping on the bed. They would shout out unintelligible words, a foreign language or ecstatic gibberish, we don't know which. The point is they were unintelligible to everyone. And everyone would just, you know, they had something that they wanted to get off their chest or whatever. And so there's these foreign sounding things and no one knows what's going on, but they're worshiping. So from first to last, a mess. So of all these problems, what would you expect? And by the way, they had a question about the resurrection of the dead. Some of you know 1 Corinthians 15 as the resurrection chapter, where Paul has to go through, okay, if there is no resurrection, then that means this, this, and this, and therefore, if Christ be not raised, our faith is futile. We still have our sin, and we're of all men the most pitiful, because that's what we base our hope on. So of all those things, what would you address first? Well, our text tells us what Paul decided to address first, and that was divisions that had arisen in the congregation. Now again, understand, we're not talking about doctrinal divisions. This congregation responded, by the way, admirably to Paul's first letter, so much so that his second letter, 2 Corinthians, was totally different. He just praised them, congratulated them that they heard his admonition, changed, corrected what was amiss, and that guy had moved in with his stepmother, they excommunicated him, he repented, and they welcomed him back. But think about that. With all those problems, Paul says, first, I don't want divisions. They're bad. This ought to teach us something. Just as in Bible class this morning, we heard that we take the Mosaic Law, which applied only to the nation of Israel, and we don't apply it. So, for example, you can't say, well, I'm going to go beat him up, because the good book says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, that was the Old Testament rules for the nation of Israel. Jesus addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you heard it said in old days, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you. So here, too, this ought to teach us something about how God values, the value he places on Christian unity, in the good sense, or disharmony in the bad. By the way, while we're tossing out famous, famous sayings, <clears throat> you probably heard this one more than once. We don't know what we've got till it's gone. I think there's a Joni Mitchell song or something with that title. That dated me. You've heard it probably often because it's true. To the extent that I could almost wish that we could for just a short period have something taken from us so that we come to appreciate it. 
because we often don't appreciate something until we lose it. It's like everything in our lives. Friends, spouse, children, our bodies working the way they're supposed to. So what if, for just a time, God saw fit to remove Christian unity from this congregation? By the way, I know how some of you hear things. And probably in some of your minds you're thinking, hmm, I wonder who the pastor's talking about this morning. And I didn't know we had a problem. To my knowledge, we don't. I'm not addressing any individual. I'm talking about the need to preserve what we have so that we don't lose it. So I could wish for a time that this could be removed so that we would learn how valuable it is, so that we would learn the downside. And I know some of you have, have intimated to me that you've been through this. You've been in fractured congregations, church wars, as they're known. And you've related to me the heartache, the, the pain, the frustration that those things cause. Some of you have been without a Christian home for a time or been separated from that by distance for a variety of reasons. You have a sense. Others don't. Others have always enjoyed the upside. If it could be taken from us for a moment, for a time until we realize and then return, that would be helpful. Also necessary here is that we we make clear that we're not talking here about divisions for doctrinal reasons. That what, what that wasn't what was going on. They had they were united in their doctrine, but the problem in Corinth was they had different ideas about how to act, what to do. And then they created these artificial divisions, maybe based on that. We don't know why they did it exactly. So in other words, they had a difference of, okay, if something is sacrificed, if, if an animal is sacrificed in a pagan temple, and then the meat is butchered and sold in the market, some said, yeah, you, know, you can eat that because there's no such thing as an idol, it's just meat. Others say, no, 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 that would be joining you to pagan worship. Paul, by the way, answered that by saying, no, it doesn't. An idol is nothing, but... Remember the conscience of your neighbor. Don't do anything by your knowledge, by your understanding, that would harm someone who doesn't have a complete understanding. So we're not talking about doctrinal differences that need to divide us. We're talking about non-doctrinal, schismatic divisions in a Christian congregation. In the verse immediately after our text, Paul went on to explain what's going on, what was going on in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he goes on, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So you get the problem. Kind of happy we don't have two pastors here because you would all be of the other guy. You're stuck with one. Again, 
the congregation decided artificially to fracture itself. And the problems were rampant. This group said, well, okay, you're of this one, I follow this guy. Probably, we don't know, but probably in an attempt to justify their position about something like head coverings or how their services could, should be conducted. People do that, don't they? They use as their champion something, someone that very often will probably condemn what they're going to do. Comes up in doctrinal disputes still today. Uh, you're studying a modern problem and you refer to Luther's statement about it. Well, for example, American Legion in our history, someone will quote Luther on American Legion. Pretty sure there wasn't an American Legion back then. You can get somebody to agree with you if you misapply or take his words out of context for just about anything. So what was the big deal with this fracturing in Corinth? Why was this such an important thing? Why is it so important to us? The Bible, you remember, describes the Christian church as a body, a living organism. And each member supplies a part often that is unique, that is not supplied in any other way, just as the human body. So eyes can't walk, feet can't see, ears can't taste, mouth can't hear. You get the point. So God says, here's how I'm going to bless my church. I'm going to provide all of these members with all kinds of different gifts and then my idea is that they come together based on believing, teaching the same thing, and then they use those gifts as a living organism, each for the benefit of the whole. And the fractured congregation robs us of the blessings God intends to give us. Now, I also know that many of you downplay your gifts. Paul also addressed that. I can't see I'm worthless because I'm not a foot. The foot can't say I'm worthless because I'm not an eye, and so on. God gave us the gifts he gave us to use for the whole, and it's, it's almost the wrong kind of humility that disparages the gifts God gave to each of us to the extent that we decide, uh, you know, it's so unimportant, I'm not even going to bother using it, because big deal, what do I have? What can I do? So Paul in Romans said, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In fractured congregations, those gifts are wasted, worst case, underutilized best. Or is that the sum total of the problem? When a congregation is fractured, when we allow things, and by the way, what usually causes these rifts in a congregation? Important things, like the color that you're going to paint the walls, the kind of music that you're going to listen to in a service. I, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Usually, it's inexplicably, it's little inconsequential things. What happens when a congregation is divided or one person separates himself, it's just like in the wild. That individual not only robs the greater body of all the gifts that God intended that person to supply, that person is infinitely, 
infinitely more vulnerable to the attacks of our enemies. Infinitely so. Even brute beasts again, even animals recognize the value of strength in numbers. The reason uh, in the animal kingdom, for the most part, is obvious. If you've ever tried to sneak up on a deer, that's a lot different than trying to sneak up on many deer. Because there's all kinds of eyeballs looking in every direction. Same thing with Christians. Everybody has a different level of understanding, different gifts, and they recognize different problems, different strengths, different weaknesses, and they're able to identify and add their counsel, their wisdom to the whole. You separate from that, you've got only what you have, and you cut yourself off from everything else that God has provided for you. For some reason, though, this isn't obvious to us. As with everything, we tend to take it for granted. It's a tremendous blessing from our God. Think of it. I can't be what I'm not, but you are what you are. I can't, I don't have the insights that many of you have. I don't have the strengths that many of you have. So if I, in my arrogance, in my lack of humility, in my pride, decide that I'm going to be offended, I'm going to separate myself, I've just cut off all those other things that I need. And I'm on my own, and I'm not very good, spiritually speaking, on my own. No one is. So are we in danger of this in this congregation? Of course we are. Every group of Christians is always in danger of allowing our, the, the sinful way we are, our old Adam, to bring fracture. Because here's an interesting thing about Christian unity. It takes everyone to make it work, and it takes only one person to cause problems. I can do that. If I listen to that petty side, that sinful side. Now we mentioned earlier that we're not talking about separating from false teaching as God also told us to do. The two go together. In other words, if there is something that is contrary to what I teach you in my word, separate yourself from it. If it's an entire church body, leave that church body. If it's an individual, you separate that individual from your fellowship because there's a poison in there and the poison will affect the whole. The whole almost never, almost never removes the poison from the individual. You try to, but not if you mask it, not if you pretend that all, all are agreed, that we're all teaching and believing the same thing. So Paul used as a basis for this harmony always a point. Now, what that means is... I know, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Every family has to have not only an escape plan, if their house starts on fire in the middle of the night, cheery thought, you're welcome. They have to not only have an escape plan, they have to have a meeting point. There's tragedies, innumerable tragedies, of family members, all of which got out, but they didn't have a gathering point. And dad or mom rushed back in the house to rescue a kid that was on the other side of the house and died. So what point did God tell us to gather at or around? Our text didn't leave us clueless here. 
We are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the point. And God revealed what He revealed in His Word. That's the greater rally point. In other words, we gather at that Word. We do believe, trust only what that Word tells us. Anybody who differs from it, we separate ourselves from them. But now that's the group that in Corinth was agreed doctrinally and yet saw a need to separate or divide artificially their fellowship. It centers, doesn't it? It relies on, as that verse we just read, on Jesus Christ our Lord. Because in the end, when you talk about all these little things, all these inconsequential, non-doctrinal things that tend to divide people, they all just pale in significance when you focus back on Christ and Him crucified. And then something else, because this gives us guidance on the humility of our Savior. He came not to be served. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the omnipotent God of heaven, came not to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom. Doesn't that just melt the sinful pride that we see? When you look at how Jesus was misused, how justice was never applied to him, or he never would have been crucified, he had no sin. And yet he did that anyway in humility for the benefit of his church. How incongruous, how bad for that church to turn around and act differently. So we gather at Jesus, we gather at what he told us, and every time we're tempted to fracture that fellowship that we have, we look again to Jesus in his word. We can have differences, we can ask questions, but then we go back to God's word to answer them, and we bow to that word of God. That takes humility, that takes patience. Because, I, I know my wife has said, you always think you're right. Well, of course I do, because if I didn't think something, I wouldn't think it. So I think it's right. Or I, I mean, I'm not going to take something. Well, we're getting into something here. The point is, all of us believe that. Nobody holds to a conviction that you think is wrong. We think we're right, but then we have to listen to our fellow Christians. We're not always right. In this congregation, we have heretofore been blessed with harmony. We've had questions, we've had differences of opinion, but we've been blessed with harmony. And it's an amazing gift. When I got here, there was an expression, everybody does something around here. It's in perfect keeping with God's picture of a group of Christians as a living organism. Everybody supplying the gifts. Can we do better? Sure. Obviously so. Many of us aren't using our gifts to the greatest ability and to, for the good of all. We address that individually. But the point this morning, again based on our sermon title, theme, is that we want to stand together as God intended recognizing the downside that if we don't, we're going to fall apart. But also the upside, when we do, Christ is magnified, gifts are shared, 
fellow Christians are built up and encouraged and strengthened, and we as a group wait patiently for our Lord's return. So then God grant us in the coming year this continued harmony, this continued humility as we deal with fellow sinners as we wait for our Lord's return.